0: forever. If you will, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and need to use one, there should be a black, hardbound Bible close by. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1 is on the first page of the first book of the Bible. So I trust that you will be able to find your way there. Today we begin a new series of sermons called From Garden to Glory. Our goal is to wrap our minds around the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now you see, the, the Bible is not a kind of religious encyclopedia. It is not a mere collection of life lessons, though there is much to learn about true religion in the Bible, and though there are many things about life to be learned in the Bible. Ultimately, it is a story, one big story. Yes, it is made of 66 different pieces of literature, uh, from poetry to law to historical narrative to letters, to all kinds of things. Uh, Yes, it was written over the course of 1,500 years by a few dozen different authors in three different languages. But it tells one story, a story that begins in a garden and ends in glory. From a garden where sin enters our existence, to glory where sin is eradicated from our existence, from a garden where war between man and God breaks out, to glory where peace between God and man endures forever, from a garden where one man and one woman are expelled from God's presence, to glory, where countless numbers of men and women, boys and girls, will enjoy the presence of God. From a garden, where the curse of sin ruins everything, to glory, where the blessing of God restores everything. That is the big story of the Bible, and today we begin with the beginning, the beginning that introduces us to the main character of the story. You know, if you watch award shows, they have, they have awards for the lead actor, and then they have different awards for the supporting actor. The lead is called the lead on purpose. That's the main person. Well, friends, humanity does not play the leading role in the story of the Bible. We are a supporting role, an important role, a villainous role. But the main role is played by God. And while we will be thinking about what is contained within Genesis 1 and 2, we're not going to read all of that, to begin. In fact, I only want to read the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Our God, as we come to Your Word, to Your story, we pray for help from Your Spirit that we might see You in Your Word, that You might open our eyes to see You and open our hearts to love You and embrace what we see in Your Word. God would You stir up our affections for You once again through Your Word. Would you, by your grace, strengthen our souls through a vision of you in your word? Would you stir in the hearts of those who don't yet know you in your fullness through faith in Jesus? Work by your spirit that they might believe even today. For Jesus' sake, and in His name we pray. Amen. God created the heavens and the earth. That is a figure of speech, by the way, called a merism, where you use contrasting or opposite things to speak of the whole. So, if this morning you looked high and low for your keys so you could get out the door, what that means is, I looked everywhere. When the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, it means He created everything, everything. And in this creation account, we learn about who God is, what He's like. Incidentally, that's why it was written down. You see, this was written down by Moses. Moses didn't write it as a play-by-play analyst. He wasn't there watching creation unfold. He's not even born for a couple of millennia. He writes it down because he wants Israel to know. These Israelites that he is leading, he wants them to know who God is. Who is this God that has called them out of Egypt, that has saved them through all these miracles, that is caring for them in the the wilderness, who will take them to the promised land? Who is this God? Have you forgotten who you serve, Israel? Have you forgotten who rescued you? Moses would just say, well, just go back and read what I've written down, and you'll remember. And don't we all need to remember who God is? We use the name of God so frequently, maybe particularly as Christians, not in order to swear or to give some kind of exclamation of surprise, but we use His name all the time. Who is this God about whom we speak? The only way to fill in those blanks is not to sit around in a circle and decide, well, what what is it that you think that God is like? Well, what is it that you think God is like? And what is it that you think God is like? As interesting as those conversations may be, they usually tell us more about ourselves than actually about God. If we want to fill in the blanks about who God is, we have to let God sit in the circle. And we say, God... What are you like?" And God speaks. And that's what we have in the Bible, and that's what we have that begins with the beginning. So who is this God who created all things? I want to mention four things that I think we can pick up from just the creation account about this God. It's not all that you can say about God, but these are all foundational truths about God. First, He is the singular God, the singular God. In the beginning, God. Now, that may not seem extraordinary to us because we come from a long line of Western thinking, Western conversation, Western philosophy, and for a long time, I mean, that was just assumed. There is a God, I mean, we all may define Him differently, but there is a God who is in charge of all things and and does certain things, or at least has done something at some point. And yet, in the ancient world, when this was written, this would be an extraordinary thing to say, to say that in the beginning, God... Because at that time, everyone believes in a divine realm, but not everyone, and in fact, practically no one believes that it's the realm of only one God. Polytheism, the existence of many gods, is the worldview of the day. And so there are stories in that day of how the gods, plural, created. But not this account. This account will tell us of a singular God who creates all things. In fact, the singularity of God will become the confession of faith for Israel. Do you remember what they are to, re- Do you remember, what they are to remember? Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if we, it's very clear in the English, right? We see there, God. There's no S at the end of that word. But when you look at it in Hebrew, it is a pluralized form of the word God, and that would stir up some question. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, you have to actually keep reading the Bible. Once you keep reading the Bible, you find out that this plurality and singularity refers to the fact that God exists and reveals Himself as three persons, that this one God exists and reveals Himself as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And actually, all three of these persons, the fullness of the one God is involved in creation. The Father is speaking, but look at verse 2. The earth was without form, and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." Hovering. It doesn't mean it was just floating there. He was not just floating there. This hovering is the kind of hovering uh, that a mother might do with their children when they're in an unfamiliar and maybe potentially unsafe environment. This is the hovering of a mama bear. Okay? It is a caring hovering. It It is not just simply floating. So the Spirit is involved. And as Chris read, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is involved. Colossians 1 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, Christ, and for him, Christ. But these three persons are not separate gods. Look, if your your brain doesn't be... If smoke does not come out of your ears when you start to think about one God existing as three persons, you ain't thinking about it right. If you say, I got this, you ain't got it. We believe it because the Bible teaches it, but God is beyond mere finite human comprehension. He is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son... And Holy Spirit, but He is one God. He is the singular God. The ancient nations had their idols. Many re- the religions of today have their gods. We chase after gods, whether they are uh, gods that we that people go to a place to worship, or they go to their workplace to worship that god, or they go to their family to worship that god, or they go to a sport to worship that god. But there are gods all around us, and actually many of the religions of today are basically telling us, you know, these other gods are just perfectly acceptable alternatives to this god that that you claim. But friends, the Bible says, no. In Isaiah 45, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. This singularity runs throughout the entire Bible. This is actually the biggest problem that the Israelites have is they keep chasing after other gods. They want to be like other nations, and they want to take on those other gods. And actually, in the New Testament, one of the ways that Paul speaks of people, the Thessalonians, becoming Christians is that they turn from idols to the one true God. There is one God, and creation teaches us that. The second thing that we see here is that He is the eternal God. Verse 1 again, in the beginning. Now it may seem that that's just the Bible's way of saying once upon a time. You know, this is just saying, you know, this is a nice way to start the story. Because after all, we speak of the beginning of a school year, or the beginning of a new season of life, or if you're fond of old movies, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This is how... We speak about beginnings, but when Genesis is saying this, it's talking about the beginning of all beginnings. The beginning of time, Psalm 90, Moses, this same Moses will write, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, before the beginning... There was only God. He is eternal. He needs nothing. He needs no one. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He exists apart from anything else. He's dependent on nothing. This is what is is known as the aseity of God. It means that God is self-existent. He simply exists. Mommy, Daddy, where did God come from? He simply is. He didn't come from anywhere, and He's not going to go anywhere. He simply is. He is the only independent being. You know, this week, uh, just in a couple of days, there will be great celebrations. You would think that these celebrations were to the gods of alcohol and explosives. However, however, they are meant to commemorate the, independent, the Declaration of Independence of our nation from England. And it worked out, didn't it? Here we are, independent. No such declaration works with God. You can declare your independence from God all you want. But the breath with which you declare your independence from God is given by God. This is actually the height of rebellion, isn't it? For God, Acts 17 says that God uh, uh, gives us everything life and breath and their being. And isn't it the height of rebellion for us to take those things which God gives us in order to rebel against God? Our life, our breath, our being. He is the eternal one. You see, God is not the product of man's imagination. Man is the product of God's imagination. In the 17th century, there was a philosopher named René Descartes, and he uh, wrote something that has been influential ever since. He wrote these this little phrase, I think, therefore. I am." In other words, the very idea of existence begins with me. I think, therefore, I am. But the Bible says, I am not my own starting point, whether that comes to my existence or to morality or to meaning or to sexuality or anything else. I am not the starting point of me. The Bible would say, God created, therefore I am. Not I think, therefore I am. God is the starting point. God is eternal. We are not. I mean, just think about this. There are those who live a very, very long time in our eyes, right? And very often when you're going to visit, uh, you know, your, your great aunt Betsy, or whatever it is, and you're going there, and she's lived 94 years, and here she is, she's still playing the fiddle. It's wonderful, and you think, ah, oh, she's had a she's had a good long life. Not in the perspective of eternity. The Bible says we're a mist. We are no more enduring than the steam that came off your coffee this morning, here one day, gone tomorrow. And do you know what that means? I mean, we think about that, right? We think about the shortness of life at particular times, don't we? We think about the shortness of life when Travis Lemaire, at 23, dies in a motorcycle accident we think about the shortness of life don't we we think it's been cut short but let me tell you in 10,000s of 10,000s of of just countless countless time and in the face of eternity the difference between 9 and 90 is nothing every life is a mist every life is a mist Because it all stands in comparison to an eternal God. Do you know what Moses concludes later on? Because he talks about the shortness of life, how we're here and then we're gone. And then he says, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. This is an eternal God we're coming to in Genesis 1. He is the singular God. He is the eternal God. Thirdly, He is the sovereign God. We're finally going to get past verse 1, all right? (coughs) Because what happens is, as the rest of the creation account unfolds, we see the sovereignty of God, that God has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. And we see it... In this account, in the rhythm of chapter one, there's a kind of call and response in chapter one. The call is, let there be. The response is, and it was so. So, one example, verse six. Now, the language does differ. It's not, it's not strictly always, let there be, and it was so. However, uh, that is the idea. So, if you look, we'll actually look at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, the end of verse 15, and it was so. Verse 3, let there be, and there was. Verse 6, let there be, the end of verse 7, and it was so. Verse 9, let the waters be gathered, end of verse 9, and it was so. And so on and so forth. Let there be comes from God. And creation calls back, and it was so. Let there be, and it was so. That is the rhythm of creation. And it was so always follows, let there be. Okay? There is no being apart from God speaking. God's voice is what puts everything in motion. Creation, listen to this, creation has no power to produce itself. It has no power to expand itself. It has no power to order itself. It has no power to fill the land and the seas and the sky by itself. God does that. Now, in our day, it is taken as a foregone conclusion that there are natural processes that have developed us to where we are. But in reality, most of the time, I'm not going to say all because I don't want to assume, but so many times it's not motivated by a pursuit of science, but a pursuit of the opposition of God. Seventy years ago, this was recognized by Martin Lloyd-Jones when he writes we are, about the theory of evolution. We are facing not a problem of science, but a problem of a spirit and an attitude that is antagonistic to God, and whose concern, as some of these scientists have been ready to admit, is to prove that the earth could not have started the, bio, the way the Bible says. He says in another place, now you may not know this about uh, uh, I don't think I'd ever call him Martin. So Dr. Lloyd-Jones uh, or the doctor is so many. You wouldn't know this about the doctor but he was actually a doctor. That doctor is not just like a PhD. He was a medical doctor before he went into ministry. He was a man of science. And he says in the same chapter of this book that, that even if he didn't believe that the Bible was the inerrant authority of God, just on the basis of science, he could not accept the theory of evolution. The Bible says, God says, and it was so. We see God's sovereignty again as He takes a part of His creation and makes us. Chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He took; he sovereignly decided to take some of His creation and create with it. And then He does it again in verse 21. So the Lord God caused at a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man." So God, in His sovereign power, His sovereign authority, takes His creation and creates us. He takes the dust and creates the man, then He takes a rib and He creates the woman, and then He brings them together and He creates the foundation, the building block of all of human society, the marriage of one man and one woman for one lifetime. You start messing around with that building block, society will fall apart. And he makes us in His image. chapter one verse 21, 27 says that. So God made him in His image. In His image, He created him, male and female. He created them. And what does that mean? Well, there are I, I, I have a book that I was looking at just this week called made in God's image it's a whole book I'm not going to recount the whole thing for you let me just give you a nutshell of what the way I think it is best to think about this which which is that in order to be made in God's image means to be made in order to represent him and to reflect his character to represent him and to reflect his character now there are all manner of people running around today wondering about their purpose in life aren't there There are people who think, I just just don't know if I have any purpose because they say, well, I'm I'm just a kid. I just have an ordinary job. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just an old man. I'm just trying to get by. I'm not trying to chase a dream. I'm not dreaming big. I'm not trying to change the world. I am just. Well, friend, let me tell you, in the middle of your justness, You have been made in the image of God, which means you were made to represent God and to reflect His character in His world. And there is no greater purpose to pursue than to live out life as God designed you. that can be done in the corner office and it can be done in the mailroom it can be done on the mission field it can be done folding laundry it can be done studying for finals it can be done in the early years of life and it can be done in the later years of life God made us in his image to represent Him, to reflect His character. And it needs to be said, friends, that every single human being, without fail and without exception, is made in the image of God. Your best friends, made in the image of God. That's not a hard one, is it? Uh, Your worst enemies, made in the image of God. The teacher that you think hates you, If you're homeschooled, I'm particularly sorry about that. (laughs) The neighbor who gets under your skin. Those that are on death row. Those that are in political office. The LGBTQ plus activist. The extreme right winger. Every single human being is made in the image of God, and that is why every single human life matters, all of them. Human beings do not have value simply because they can exist independently outside the womb. Human beings don't have value simply because they're productive and contributing parts of society. Human beings don't have more or less value because they share my same values. My same morals. Human beings do not have value only if they have full use of their mental faculties, or if they have a body that works properly, or they're not only valuable up to a certain point in the disease process. No, from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death, every single human life matters for one reason. We are made in the image of God. If you believe that, and if I believe that, we will treat other people differently. People with whom we vehemently object to their lives, their views, their worldview, their morality. We object to all of it. It will change how you treat them to your face, and it will change how you speak of them behind their back. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Why? Because God made us that way. God, in His sovereignty, spoke all of creation into existence. And He made us in His image. And He produced the foundation of human society. He is the sovereign God. Fourthly, He is the righteous God. The righteous God. Like God's sovereignty, God's righteousness is rhythmic in this uh, creation account, particularly in chapter 1. If you were to look at verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, what you'll see are these words And God saw that it was good. that seeing is not just an observation it is an evaluation Uh, just on Friday I went and picked up a truck uh, a a rental truck for uh, our oldest son Caleb and his bride they're moving to Nashville and uh, Tennessee outside of Indiana you don't have to clarify which Nashville you're talking about but Outside of Indiana, yeah, so Nashville, Tennessee. So they're moving, so I went and got the truck, and as soon as the papers were signed, I was to go and make sure everything was in order. I was to look at the odometer, make sure it matches what's on the paper. I was to look at the license plate, make sure that matches what's on the paper. I was to look at all four sides of the truck and make sure it matched the pictures that I had in front of me. I wasn't simply to see the truck by way of, oh, this is nice, this side is the same color as that side. Isn't that nice? That's just really nice. I don't just observe it. I was looking at it to evaluate it, and that's what God is doing. God is walking through creation with His clipboard, as it were. Day and night, check. see check. Sky, check. Sun, moon, stars, check. Fish, birds, check. Land animals, check. And at the end of it all, in chapter 1, verse 31, this is what it says. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. God evaluates creation. He calls it good. Why? Because He is the only one who can. He is the only one who knows what good really is. He is righteous. He alone is righteous. He alone thinks righteous thoughts. He alone says righteous words. He alone understands what righteousness looks like. He alone can say what he, when His creation is in line with His purposes. About 12 years ago, our second son, Austin, entered the state fair in the Lego competition. And for weeks, he was working on this board building. And one day, when he was at school one of his younger sisters decided to help by adding pink and purple flare to this military outer space camp. Well, you might be able to imagine how Austin thought of this when he got home. He got home and he saw his creation and he did not say, it is good. He said this is my project I did this it's supposed to be built the way I want it to be built only I can decide what goes on this board and what doesn't go on this board and friend God is the only one who can say what's good and right for his creation but that doesn't just go for nature you know that That doesn't just go for all those things out there. That goes for you and me. Because we are part of His creation. And God is the only one who can say whether you and I are operating within His design. You see, my opinion of me doesn't actually matter. And my opinion of you doesn't actually matter. God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. All that matters is what God sees and what God says. And in the beginning, in Genesis 1, everything is good. In Genesis 2, everything is good, including humanity. Now as we'll see next week, everything doesn't stay good. Everything goes wrong, not because of some flaw with God, but because we rebel against our Creator. And from Genesis 3 on, the verdict is revealed in Romans 3. No one does good, not even one. So from then on, God looks at those made in His image and says, not good. Not because there is no longer an image of God, but because we are not in line with His purposes to represent Him and to reflect His character. God sees that. God sees our sin. God sees what we think we can hide. God sees what you think you can hide by coming here every Sunday, by being involved in various ministries, by teaching a class, by taking a meal to a widow, by doing all kinds of things. God can see what it is that you think that you are hiding. The hidden lifestyle, the hidden habit, the hidden online activity. Kids, listen to me. Your parents may not know what you're hiding, but God does. They may never see it. And you may feel quite a bit of satisfaction about that. But let me tell you in the end, it won't matter whether, God, whether your parents see it or not. Or not. What matters is that God sees it. God sees it. When you're a child, you may hide it in your closet. When you move out of the house, you may hide it by keeping it over there and putting on your best game face when you come home. But God sees it. He sees our sin and He says, not good. And that's the only evaluation that matters. So here we have this singular, eternal, sovereign, righteous God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the main character of the Bible, and this is the God we pray to. This is the God we trust in suffering. This is the God many were pleading with as the wind burst against the house just this week. This is that God. This is the God we seek for wisdom. He is singular, so we look nowhere else. He is, etern- is eternal. He was and is and is to come, and He's not surprised by anything. He is sovereign. Nothing comes into our lives apart from His good purposes. And He has the power to help us in our time of need. And He is righteous. What He says is right, what He does is right, His evaluation is right. He will never steer us wrong. If you are a Christian, this is your God. And if you're not a Christian, this God is your only hope. Because we've gone wrong. Because we've rebelled against Him. It's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 4, God looks on these sinful people and He says this, I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. Now, I hope that you recognize that language, without form and void, no light. This is Genesis 1 language, sin undoes the goodness of creation. But this God who created us and who sees our sin and declares it no good and sees our hopeless position and sees us laying dead in a pool of our own depravity, He does not leave us. He comes to us. And actually, this is what makes the Christmas story so awe-inspiring. It's not Mary's faith or Joseph's character or the angelic visits, or the star that leads the wise men that makes it so amazing. It is this, that in this manger, swaddled and held in Mary's arms, is the creator of the universe. That in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the creator steps into creation. The singular God steps into the mass of humanity. The eternal God steps into time. The sovereign God steps into helplessness in the arms of this girl. The righteous God enters a world of unrighteousness, not to condemn it, but to save it. And Jesus lives out what it means to be made in the image of God. He represents God. He reflects God's character perfectly, not simply to be an example for us, but so that He could stand before God as our substitute in our place and take our sin, our shame, our guilt, and die for it on the cross. God eternal humbled to the grave. That's what he came to do. And then he was risen, declaring once and for all that the work is finished, that the sacrifice that he has made is sufficient to rule and reign forever. And friend, if you will turn to him, If you will trust in Him, your sin will be forgiven. God's evaluation of you will change. He will no longer look at you and say, not good. He will look at you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you, so that that's all He sees, and He will look at you and say what He said of Jesus Very good. Very good. And how does the Bible describe this one when they come to faith in Jesus? Well, Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The power of the Creator has come in. God said, let light shine out of darkness in your life. That's what we need. Don't you want the old to be gone? Don't you want the new to come? Don't you want to leave behind the guilt and the shame? Don't you want to find something new? The only place you'll find it is in Jesus. If you will come to Him, then the God who created you will recreate you. He'll recreate you. Let's pray. Oh God, how we are in awe of you, how we see you as singular and eternal and sovereign and righteous in your word, in your work of creation, and how thankful we are that you are our God. And Father, we are thankful that you stepped down into time into darkness and that you opened our eyes to make us see that we were dead but the creator has made us alive how we thank you for that how great you are truly we are in awe of you God, I pray for those who do not know you. Cause them to see who you are and what you have done for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they might run to him and be a new creation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a second, we will stand and sing a song that I think is a right response to.